Our scripture reading this morning and also this afternoon, it's all going to come out of Luke 15. We're going to essentially live in that chapter today. Uh, Jesus gives three parables there. We're going to be looking at the third in particular detail. Uh, the morning we're going to look at the first half of Jesus' parable. To the, we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Um, so we'll be looking at the younger son. And this afternoon we're going to be looking at the older son. This morning then, we're going to start with Luke 15. We're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 24. And that gets us to the end of the first portion of, of the first half of the parable. And then the text, as you'll see in your bulletin, is verse 11 to 24. And so, if you all have it open, I would encourage you as we go along as well, keep your Bibles open. We're going to be preaching and working through this passage, it'll be helpful to have your Bible just to follow along. You, you always want to test what's being said up here against the Word of God. But you may also find it a very helpful practice to be able to, to see, okay, well, that's where we are. That's where we're following. That's, that's where it's coming from. So uh, I would encourage you, do keep your Bibles. Once the, the reading's done, don't close it. Keep it open. So Luke 15, we'll begin... At verse 1, to get the, the context and the sweep of how we come to the parable. It says there, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search, search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now we come to our text. And then he said, this is Jesus, of course, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So we'll stop there. For this morning, this afternoon, we'll pick up and we'll follow through on the second half of the parable. See the sermon title in your bulletin. It's called A Father Restores His Son. The outline is also there. So you'll, if that helps you at all, hopefully it does. But we'll see it as we go along. So the parable of the prodigal son, it's a pretty well-known parable. Now, one of the challenges of being one of the best-known parables is that it can begin to be like old news to us. And don't hear me wrong, it doesn't need to be like that, and it's not always like that, but it can be. Now kids, maybe you have this in your family. Maybe a new guest comes over, and your dad or your mom, they they launch into that one legendary family story that you have heard at least a thousand times before. Well, it's it's a good story. You might groan a little bit inside, right? Okay, here we go again. You might even tune it out. Well, today we are also coming to a familiar story. But I hope and I pray that we'll be able to hear it once again as if it was the first time that you were ever hearing this parable. This is a parable for you and me. It's a parable that we need. And so we're going to spend the day here. As I said, this morning we'll look at the the younger son. This afternoon we will look at the older son. It's helpful if we begin by examining the context in which Jesus delivers this parable. If you want to do that, you can do that with me. Turn to the first part of the chapter. We we have it right there. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We're introduced to the the real world characters that are later going to be seen in this parable. In verse 1, we see that there's action going on. We have tax collectors and sinners, and they're going somewhere. And they're going to someone. They're they're coming to Jesus. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to a very different group. But they're also doing something. This group is comprised of the Pharisees and the scribes. And the action that we find them busy with is complaining. Now, why? We can look at what they say. They say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, they despise the tax collectors and the sinners. And they simply didn't get why Jesus didn't despise them too. And if we want to do justice to Luke's account of Jesus' entire ministry, 
we must recognize this is not just a one-off situation. We see the scribes and the Pharisees, they do this more often. We see it back in Luke 5, when Jesus, there's a feast that's thrown by Matthew, the tax collector, when Jesus calls him to be a disciple. We see it after this passage here in Luke 19. We have the conversion of Zacchaeus. Once more, in his joy, Zacchaeus, he makes a feast, but he's a tax collector. And the response is the same. Scribes and Pharisees, they complain and they grumble. And so we see we're talking here about hearts that were very hard. Hearts that had no room for compassion, that had no love for the repentant sinner. And so we have these two groups that emerge. We've got one group they are seeking. And we have another group that is scorning. And to this mixed audience we have Jesus. Jesus is at the center. He's the cause of it all. And in response to the situation he gives three parables. And we read them. So the first was about a sheep. And the second about a coin. The third about two sons. In all three it, they concern the recovery of something that was lost. In each, we see there's this repeated pattern. There's an item that goes missing, and then move along. The item is recovered, and then we see that celebration ensues. And there are subtle differences between them. The point in each of them is this, that there is joy in heaven when a sinner is reconciled to God, that the angels rejoice. That God rejoices. We see in the giving of this parable the wisdom of our Savior. Jesus was addressing the specific scenario that was in front of him. He was teaching two lost groups of sinners the heart of heaven. He was inviting them and us to come to him in repentance. Assuring us that when we do, we are welcomed home. And so as we look at this younger son this morning, there's a little phrase that can help us remember how the parable goes along. It goes like this. And you have that actually in your bulletin as well. The younger son, he was first sick of home. Then he gets sick. Then he gets homesick. And then he comes home. It's really quite simple. And so we use those, that little phrase as the the jumping points or the points for the sermon as well. So the younger son, he was sick of home, then he gets sick, then homesick, then home. First, we see it verses 11 to 13, your Bible's open, that's sick of home. Verses 14 to 16, we see that's where he's sick. And then in verses 17 to the first half of verse 20, we see he's homesick. And then in the final point, the second half of verse 20 through to verse 24, we see the son as he is home. So let's begin in the first point. We want to see this younger son as he is sick of home. Having already given two parables, Jesus turns to a third to drive home his point. If the characters could be mistaken in those first two parables, this time they seem quite clear to us. We can remember the context. Just as there's these two distinct groups that are coming to Jesus... In verses 11, we see that three characters now emerge in Jesus' parable. We see that there is a father, who is Jesus, and that this father has two sons. And so far, nothing unusual. 
It's in verse 12. We get the first indication that things are not well in this family. The younger of these two sons, he kicks off our parable. He makes a, a really outrageous demand. He says, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And, and we need to be clear. This is not the request of a respectful son. In that culture, you supported yourself off of the property that you owned. So in this demand, the son, he was asking his father to split up the family livelihood. He wants him to give the younger son his portion and to give it to him now. Now this was not typical practice. Occasionally it did happen that a father would choose to divide his property a little bit early. As the younger of the two sons, this, this younger son, he rightfully stands to inherit one third of the estate. Two thirds would go to the older brother. But normally... It was the typical practice to wait until the father had died before the splitting of the inheritance would happen. And so here we see the son, he's essentially saying, Father, you know what, I'm just tired. I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of waiting for you to die. In fact, I wish that you were already dead, but you're not. So why don't you just hand it over to me now? Now, I get that our culture is somewhat different than theirs. But I'm sure that you could imagine such a scenario unfolding. And so I ask those of you who are fathers and mothers, what would such a cold-hearted demand do to your heart? And depending on your disposition, you might be tempted to fall into intense grief or to lash out in retaliation. How dare the son do such a thing? Maybe you would think it's high time to put this child in their place. Maybe just go the whole way and tell them, forget it. You know what? You are cut out of the will entirely. You are getting not a penny. And yet we're not told of a family argument ensuing. In the face of this, this absolute coldness, the father, he does not disown his son. And as painful and as impractical as the demand would have been, we're only told that the father complies. He divides his property between his sons. But what we can't miss is that this son, he has no love whatsoever for his father. Now we know that's not the end of the story. The son, he, he quickly doubles down on that, that first thing that he did, that first insult. He, he wants to go further. He stabs another metaphorical dagger into the heart of his father. In verse 13... We're told that not many days later, the younger son, he gathered all together. In the original Greek, the word used for gathered, it's a financial word. It basically equates to he liquidated his assets. His dad gave him property. Well, he can't travel with property, so he wants cash. He sells off everything he'd just been gifted. He puts that cash in his pocket, and then he hits the road. And still, we're not told of how the father responded. But for those who are listening to Jesus' parable, there would be no question at all. Remember, Jesus is giving this parable to crowds that were around him. Here's a son who is in absolute disgrace, who has no love for his father and who is utterly sick of home. And so let me ask you, who would want to claim that son as their own? Now, you know this is just the beginning. 
And what follows, it's in a way tragic, but it's not altogether unexpected. After that bad introduction, the rotten character of the son, it's going to be further revealed. We see that in the, the second half of verse 13. Here, the, the son earns the title of prodigal. Now, I don't know if you know what prodigal means, but essentially it means to, to waste your money very rapidly, to do so extravagantly. And so that's what he does. He disdains his father. He spends his, his inheritance freely. He doesn't have a tinge of regret. He has not a thought for his future. He's just going to blow through the money. Now, what if I told you that all too often we act like that self-indulgent son? Our eyes can quickly wander. We grow discontent with the providences that God gives. You see, we spit in the face of immense grace. You know the, the hymn, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's so often true of us. We recognize the fact we often act like this younger son. Rebellious. Discontent. And that rebellion, when it's left unchecked, it never leads to better things. And so that brings us to the second point. The younger son, he gets sick. If we look at verse 14, we're going to see that there are new depths. He spent every last penny. The son, he, now he reveals he's also a fool. He has no contingency plan. No forethought in what he would do after the money ran out. And again, the point is very clear. This is a son that no father would be proud of. Who's going to want to claim such a son? And when famine strikes, he begins to be in need. And from what we've learned so far, this could be for the very first time in his life. And we may wonder, why did he not turn for home at that first pinch in his stomach? The first time he, he felt genuinely hungry. I think if we search our own hearts, we should discerningly question whether we might have. Sinful pride, it has a way of clouding wisdom. Once embraced, sin is sticky, isn't it? You can't just shake it off. It, it, it wants to, to cling to you. It, it attempts to hold us in a death grip. It, it whispers. It lies to us. And, and we know that it's bad, but sin tempts us to think that we can somehow fix the problem ourselves. Now this is true of all sins, but it's especially true of hidden sins. You see, we hate the idea of shame. And so hidden sins, they actually have a double edge. Things like pornography or drug use or alcoholism come to mind. We see here the younger son, he's gone to a faraway country. Surely, if all he wanted to do was have a good time, he could have spent that money close to home. But he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to be convicted. He didn't want his conscience to nag him. Do you know that tension? Now, hidden sins are often dismissed in our minds because the lie is believed that no one else knows and that somehow they can't be that bad. But is that true? Is that really true? We need to recognize the battle that we're in. Satan loves to make sin seem like a little thing. 
In our culture, if we look around, it doesn't help us at all by celebrating what God clearly forbids. And so let's be realistic and search ourselves. Often, these sins, they hide for too long because we think that we can fix it ourselves. That if we have just enough time, you know, someday, I will conquer that sin. But brothers and sisters, don't believe that. Don't let secret sin hold you for even a day longer. You need to bring sin into the light. You need to tell someone. You need to get help. And you need to see that the chains of sin can be broken. I don't want to come across as pessimistic. You didn't come here for pessimism. You came here to hear King Jesus. But you won't fix these sin problems yourselves. You can't fix it yourself. In the war against sin, you need God's help. Now in our parable, the son's pride, it keeps him at bay, right? He's not yet ready to return and confess to his father. We can see it in our own hearts. We can see it in the stories of so many others who have walked the prodigal's road. And there is a serious warning to be had here. Because if this son does not return home, he is utterly and completely lost. There is no other way to be saved than in coming in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ. There are many who have turned their back on Christ and on the church who will not be found with Christ in glory. We need to recognize that fact. Maybe, maybe even now, you have a loved one, a son or a daughter, who are wandering from God. The situation is dire. Pray for them earnestly. Because while there is breath in their lungs, God leaves opportunity for them to turn. And as this parable shows, sometimes God allows them to fall quite far before they actually return home. In verse 15, we see the sad descent. It continues. He's driven by his need to survive. And so the son, he willingly takes up work as a pig herder. And you can picture the looks of disgust on the Jewish faces of those who are listening to Jesus. Because for the Jew, this would have seemed like the lowest of the low. Pigs, they were unclean. You, could, you couldn't be a self-respecting, clean Jew and take this job. And here's this younger son. He's now in a foreign land. He's herding pigs. And again, you have that implied question, who would claim such a son? And then in verse 16, the son, he bottoms out, we could say. He's out in the fields with the pigs. And the son's hunger is so intense that his pride is finally shattered. He begins to envy the pigs. And I don't know how much you, this is a semi-rural congregation perhaps. I don't know how much you know about pigs and what they're like and what they do and what they eat but it's quite something if you could look at yourself and say you know what I would rather be that pig right now and eat what he's eating than be myself. You've fallen pretty far right? Well to add to his distress those who are around him the people who maybe had just watched his meteoric rise and then just the crash No one has pity for him. No friend comes to meet him in his hour of need. He's got no food. He's got no comforting words. He is utterly alone. He's in a far land. And now he's jealously eyeing up pig food. 
So I ask you again, who among Jesus' crowd of hearers would be ready to claim this guy as their own? In today's speech, he is a loser of the highest class. He has dishonored the family. He's got nothing going for him at all. At last, here we have a son who's come to the very end of himself. See, here's a son who is sick. And yes, he's reaping what he had sown. In his desperate need, he is humbled. We've got to see something here. Sin is utterly illogical. Sin promises you the world. It's never going to deliver. It never can deliver. It only ultimately leads to despair. But yet, it's when this younger son recognizes that he is truly sick, that his story begins to turn. And just so, when we recognize the same thing, we recognize our brokenness, our sinfulness, our need, it's then that our story turns as well. And so that then leads to the third point, the son's homesickness. Now, if this was a cartoon, this would be the moment where you just have the, the light bulb, right? The, the light bulb appears above the head. You guys have seen cartoons like that, haven't you? It's in his hour of his, his deepest despair that he recalls life in his father's house. He's at the end of himself. He's far from home. And, and he remembers, what am I even doing out here? Now he's a hired servant himself. He remembers his father's hired servants. He remembers that they had more than enough. And here he is. He's perishing. And so we see a plan begins to form in his mind. You see it in verse 18 and 19. You see what the plan is. Before he's going to take a single step homeward, he needs to prepare his confession. What's he going to say? Well, we see what he intends to say. He wants to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice here, he sees his sin, and he is sorry for it, but he's still... He's not all the way there. He still wants to do something about it himself. He recognizes there's a debt to be paid. He says, make me like one of your hired servants. We should recognize there's not a single finger pointed in defiance at his father now. Nothing like that at all. He sees the blame. It falls fully on himself. He alone has put himself here. And now this lonely son, he desperately just wants to go home. He's a homesick son. And in verse 20, we see that plan put into action. And this is a maxim. You know it. Actions speak louder than words. It's important. It needs to, to go somewhere, right? Because without action, this son, he is genuinely homesick. He's about as miserable as he could be. But he's pretty far from home. So first, the son, he, he'd gone away to hide his sin. What he wanted to do He's a different man. He's resolved now to return home. He needs to go and tell all to his father. And we see there's a progression here. If he'd merely come to the realization of his sin, that would not have been enough. And we need to recognize something in this. Because often we can be convicted of our sins. You, you know what conviction of sin is, right? Where your conscience before God you know what you've done is wrong. But conviction 
It's not the same thing as repentance. It's not the same thing. It's the start. It leads to, but it's not the same. And so if and when by God's grace you feel convicted of sins, whether they are old or whether they're new, you should never just leave it as a conviction. Just as we see in this son, repentance has legs. It needs to go somewhere. It needs to go to someone. We were made in repentance to run to Christ. And we must do the same. We are to get up. We are to run to our Savior. And we really, if we look at ourselves here today, we have no excuse for dragging our feet. We can come to Jesus. See, as Jesus is telling this parable, obviously the son, he's not a, a real person. But unlike this son, you who are in this room, you know how this parable ends. You know how he's going to be received. We, we know the broader theme. We know that heaven rejoices over one lost sinner who repents. We know the reception that awaits this son on his return. We know so much more than he did. We know the heart of heaven. The heart of our Savior as he gives this parable. That he is the one who has come to forgive sins. To make reconciliation possible. And so if you are here as broken, struggling saints. See that you are also beloved. Like this son, no matter how far you've run away. No matter what your particular sins may be. You can turn and you need to come in repentance to Jesus. And so with his confession prepared. The son, he heads for home. And just like that, we, we've run through the parable. We've come to the final point. I think this is probably everyone's favorite part of the parable. There's a good reason for that. The son, he comes home. What sort of a reception did he expect? Well, from our parable, it appears the son, he recognized that he was utterly unworthy of any reception at all. And so it is altogether beautiful and unexpected the words that we find here. The text says, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And so do you remember the question I've been asking all the way through? Who would want to claim this son? Well, it's brushed aside in a moment, isn't it? The father, he's been watching, he's been longing, he's been missing his son. And now here he is. Do you see how it's not the father's heart that needed to change. The father, he has such an eagerness that he runs to close the gap between them. And I don't want to spend much time on this, but in Jewish society, old men didn't run. For one thing, it's highly impractical. You're wearing a robe, you're kind of fancy, you had status you didn't run. You just didn't. But see something here. The father, he cares so little about social convention. He can bear that humiliation. His only concern is to draw near to his beloved son. Like you, like me, utterly unworthy, but loved beyond comprehension. We see here the heart of heaven. Here we take a, a look at the compassion of our God. 
Here we see the love of Christ for us, struggling as we may be. He has compassion on the lost and the broken, as Jesus himself could say, for he had come to seek and to save the lost. Do you see his heart in all of this? Well, now in the arms of of this loving father, the son, he attempts to make his confession. And you can picture the scene. I can't picture the scene without just imagining tears in the eyes of both of them. The son's voice, it breaks forth. He has this often recited confession. How many times on the way back did he, did he run this over in his head? And this is what he says. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. And am no longer worthy to be called your son. And you know what? It's true. It's completely true. But those words, they could fall from our lips with the exact same truth. This could be our prayer. These could be our words. I have sinned against God and man. I am not worthy to be called your child. Yet church, was this the confession that was planned? And partly it it was, right? Yes. But if we look at the text, we see that the son, he never even finished his planned speech. What happened to the the second part? What happened to treat me as one of your hired servants? Well, it's as if this, this hand is just held up. Stop, my son. I need to hear no more. Is there any question at all that this father has accepted his son? That he loves even this broken, tattered son? Have you ever seen the the picture by Rembrandt of the the prodigal? You just see he's barefoot, he's torn up, and he's just in the arms of his father. I won't get into whether or not it captures all of this, but it maybe gives you an idea. A lot of word from the father. Servants, they're sent to fetch the best robe. A ring for his finger. Shoes for his feet. The son is accepted back, not as a hired servant, but with all the marks and the privileges of sonship. The father, he doesn't demand any compensation. And here is the heart of heaven. That the son was unworthy, Jesus had made abundantly clear. The son, he knew it as well. He had confessed it. But he was forgiven. The son is welcomed back into his father's house with joy that is overflowing. And so it was on that day as those tax collectors and the the sinners they're coming to Jesus. In their repentance they found in Jesus complete forgiveness. They found it willingly given. But do you see that so do we. As we come to Jesus we see the same thing. This is Always the heart of Christ towards the repentant. A feast is called for. Celebration ensues. We should note the differences. Here we had from the muck of the pig pan. Eyeing up pig's food. In abject loneliness. To the embrace of a loving father. An invitation to enter his house as a son. To come to the table. To eat freely even of the fattened calf. That's the story of the Christian, of mercy beyond words. As the Father says in verse 24, For this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This last portion, it inevitably strikes the heart of God's adopted children. We are this son. We aren't treated as our sins deserve. You can come to this Savior. And maybe some of you are thinking, you know what? No, not me. You don't know me. You just, this is your first day here. Right? You haven't even talked to me. You don't know how wicked I am. You don't know what I've done. No. You're right. I'll own that. I'll own that fully. I don't need to know what you've done to tell you that you may still come. That you can come and be made free. You can come and be found. Here's the thing. All of us are broken. All of us need to come. And you can come here every single day until God brings you home to glory. You see in this parable parable that Jesus, he turns no one away. You see the willingness with which grace is lavished. Our Savior, he cries out in Matthew 11, come to me. Come to me. That's where our eyes look as Christians continually. Where else would we go? We run to Christ. Here in this parable, we see that Jesus' compassion, it's greater than anything the scribes and the Pharisees ever thought. Greater than we can even imagine. He lavishes his grace on us and he does so freely. And in the parable of the son, he pays no price to be readmitted to the family. He comes, he eats freely at the banquet table of our God. And so do we. But brothers and sisters, there was a price. It didn't fall on the son. It doesn't fall on us. But there was a price. And that price was Jesus' life for yours. His blood making atonement for your sin. He went to the cross of Calvary. He died there for you and me. Do you think he did it because it was fun or easy? Do you see the love that he has for his people? I don't need to know all your sins to tell you that you need to come to this Savior. But know this, though he paid the price with his life, there is no grudge on his face as you come to him. He does not cross his arms to keep you away. This is the Savior who calls you to come. Knowing the cost, Jesus, he willingly died in your place. And it is his delight to welcome repentant sinners home. What would keep you from coming to such a Savior. Now there's a hymn that sums all of this up very beautifully. I find hymn writers they have a way of saying things. I, I'm not that poetic. I'm not that gifted. I'm not going to try to sing it for you. Maybe you know this one already. It's called His Mercy is More. But here in it, the wonder of the mercy of your God. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscience, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Dear congregation, in this parable, see the heart of heaven. See the mercy of Christ. No matter how broken, how despicable, how lost you have been, or maybe you are at this very moment, how utterly unworthy or cold your heart seems, you may turn. You may see the arms of Christ held open. And if you look at yourself today and wonder, who would claim such a son or daughter? Well, this parable has given you the answer. There is a Savior who came to do just that. In his love, he will not turn you away. For though, yes, our sins, they are many. Truly, his mercy is more. Amen.